And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over. On a cold Wednesday night in July 1990, 23-year-old Sarah McDermott did not come home from a game of tennis after work with colleagues. Her parents, Peter and Sheila McDermott, waited an anxious night before ringing her work first thing the next morning. To their horror, they heard Sarah had caught the train home with her work friends Gavin and Diane the night before. They reported her missing to police and watched as a full-scale investigation and search was launched into their daughter's disappearance. In this episode, Vicky Petratus takes us through what happened when Sarah disappeared. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. When someone disappears, there's a frantic void for those left behind, hardly daring to breathe, hoping against hope that she's just lost her way home. Because when something's lost, it can be found. The absence is an ache, nerves on fire, jolting with each ring of the phone, waiting for good news and feeling sick that the news might not be good. And even when you fear the worst, there's always hope because No news is good news. Isn't that how it works? But police suspected right from the start that Sarah McDermott had met with foul play. The evidence suggested she was attacked as she reached the door of her car. She sustained an injury that caused blood loss and was then dragged over to the bushes that formed a border between the car park and Wells Road and the amount of blood found soaked into the ground suggested that she had been left there for some time. Frankston CIB detective Colin Clark could tell that from the crime scene. To me, it was obviously that she'd been there for a long time. There was a fair amount of blood uh, in the dirt and in the bracken, but there, so it may have been after death that the blood's been there, but... No, it was pretty obvious that she'd been seriously injured or murdered to me at the time. It's all very well to have theories, but what do you share with the family? It's very hard for them. We liaise very closely with them. They're lovely people, absolutely fantastic people. And Alistair, the, the brother, was he'd only just turned 21, I think the week before. Very staunch people. And, and look, we all cross fingers that she's still alive, but 
Despite their grave fears for their daughter, the McDermott family took some comfort from all the police activity that sprung up around them. It was clear that the police were using every resource they had to look for Sarah. There's no doubt about it, we couldn't fault them. No, no. We could not fault them. Um, and, And we couldn't fault the police because we were really in a terrible state, but you were aware of noises going on, and that was the helicopters. God, I and was you know, there was as soon as it was by lunchtime, mm. they were in action. So you can't say that they didn't jump into um, action quick. Inspector Laurie Ratz and detectives Cole Clark and Jeff Randall had called in the homicide squad. They theorised about where Sarah might be. Laurie Ratz explains the process. Having a look at exactly what happened and trying to develop a bit of a, an idea of where cars might have been and if a car came and picked her up or if she was picked up and carried away or whatever. And that's why with the search and rescue squad to start searching in, in the near vicinity and then spread the search out. Because she could have been in a bush 10 metres away that you wouldn't see. She could have been anywhere. The extensive police search was overseen by Senior Sergeant Jeff Frost from the Police Search and Rescue Squad. It was an intense, large-scale, land, water and air operation. Each day it got bigger and by the third day, 123 police and SES personnel were combing bushland, scrub, waterways and beaches starting at the Cannonock Railway Station and working outwards in all directions. For Brian McManus and the SES, it was all hands on deck. If she was local, then we would have found her because of the amount of time that we spent searching. We had quite a number of SES volunteers out there searching. We did a search on the Frankston Freeway up to Bomb Beach, all around the Cannonock Railway Station, you know, all the bush area even down Frankston Foreshore or the one at Seaford Foreshore. And it just indicates that probably she's been put in a car and driven away somewhere. At the start of the search for Sarah McDermott, there still existed a possibility that she may have been injured and wandered off. Even though this was unlikely, because of the absence of a blood trail leading away from the bushes, and since her backpack handbag and tennis racket were missing as well, it seemed unlikely that a badly injured woman would wander off and carry all those items with her. Once police and SES had searched the surrounding area, they had to consider the possibility that someone could have moved Sarah and her belongings. The area opposite the railway station was mostly commercial businesses And if you turned left onto Bardia Avenue from Wells Road, rather than go up over the bridge, the area was industrial, and many big factories had dumpsters outside them. Very soon into the search, a theory sprang up that perhaps Sarah and her belongings had been disposed of into a dumpster. Brian McManus knew the problem that posed. But there was talk about the dumpsters 
that she might have been put in a dumpster somewhere and taken to the Frankston tip because the people that pick up the dumpster, they don't check what's in there. And, of course, if that's the case, the Frankston tip, I mean, it's, it's bigger than Ben Hur. Laurie Rance explained the dumpster problem. Sarah was taken on the Wednesday night and reported missing first thing Thursday morning. By the time local police took the report, checked out the information with Sarah's work, then passed the case on to the CIB, who also checked out the information, arrived at the scene and discovered something wrong, it was early afternoon. By then, some local dumpsters had already been emptied. One thing that's important to remember about dumpsters as a theory is that if they are accessible to the public, they're often kept locked to stop other people from using them. One of the problems, though, with that, Vicky, was, and you're right, we did search the dump masters and some were locked in any case. So around the big, that area is very close to the industrial area. So there's a lot of dump masters around. But one of the problems was we were 24 hours behind right from the beginning. The real concerted search didn't start till Friday the 13th. So you're looking at more than 24 hours. So in that time, quite a few dump masters had been uh, actually picked up on the Thursday and taken to the tip. We tried to work out which ones had been there and not attended to, so we would search them. And then we worked out which ones had been emptied in the meantime. And from memory, there was quite a few that had been picked up and emptied during that Thursday. So was the tip searched? There was a period of time where dump masters had been collected and had been emptied. David Sprague and I both had a look at that and we worked out that most of them had been emptied at the Frankston tip. And we went down to the tip to have a look at how much had been tipped there in that 24, 26, 28-hour period. And it was huge. The manager of the tip told us that it would probably be about two or three feet deep and an area about the size of the MCG oval. So to search that was just impossible. And a decision was made at that stage, other than a cursory search of what was on the, the surface of the tip, we just didn't have the ability to be able to dig that deep in such a large area. So a decision at that stage was made that we just couldn't search the tip to that extent. I mean, if we had have had a couple of front-end loaders or diggers, we could have searched there for weeks and not found anything. And again, she could have been somewhere else. She could have been laying somewhere else. There was lots of vacant areas around vacant land. So you've got to sort of you've got to try and make the best decision with all of the knowledge and information you've got at that stage. And at that stage, it was decided that it was just not feasible to do it. It's always been a bit of a worry of mine, but it just wasn't feasible. As the police widened their search for Sarah, the McDermott's found their world narrowed. Everything was put on hold and they entered into a time of limbo that perhaps only people who've gone through what they've gone through can fully understand. Sarah's brother Alistair describes his memories of that time. As things ramped up, it became more and more surreal all the time because you then had the reporters all descending and wanting to speak to mum and dad and you had TV crews rocking up and and then all the searching that started. So there were SES representatives and more police 
from different teams in different different areas and for different purposes. It's all trying to help us and trying to help find Sarah. And we were very appreciative of all those groups and individuals that look to help us out. When something like this happens, we think of the family, but what about work colleagues and friends? Sarah's disappearance was devastating for the people she worked with too. Her work colleagues at CE Heath were also caught in that state of limbo. But the world and work on insurance moves on, even if one employee's desk is suddenly and tragically empty. Sarah's work friend Angela explained what it was like in the aftermath of her disappearance. I remember in the workplace, because Sarah and I, we worked together, and when she didn't arrive the next day, it's like, oh, God, that job has to be continued. Where was she at? What did she do? But with me, because I actually worked with her, it just felt empty that this person was is coming back to finish this job, that she was on the calculator or she had her pen there or she had notes or whatever it was, and no one was coming back to finish that. Sarah wasn't coming back to finish that. So I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I need to go and sit in Sarah's desk and open her drawer and see where she was at and where she put things and her papers and all the rest of her. And it just felt really empty. And to have to pick up where she left off, it was really hard because we were all waiting for her to come back. News of Sarah's disappearance spread quickly at C.E. Heath because it was there Sheila McDermott had first called. And, of course, Sarah's workmates, Diane and Gavin, were the last ones to see her. Nonetheless, Sarah's friend Sonia remembers being called into the office to be told officially... Even though her husband, Con, didn't work at C.E. Heath, he came to the after-work pub nights and knew Sarah well. He and Sonia often gave her a ride to social functions. I remember, actually, the next day, getting called into Barry's office at the managing director. That was horrible. Mm. That was really horrible. So how did they tell you? Well, I called us all into his office and... He knew something was wrong. I remember you being all stressed out and contacting me that you heard about what had happened, that that something had happened. They spoke to you at work and you were really stressed out and, and, and I'm sitting there stunned because I thought, she's such a quiet, timid person, like she wouldn't dis- dis- just disappear. Of course, Sarah's colleagues were not privy to the clues found in the station car park. In those early days, when no one knew that the police had found a lot of blood at the scene, there was a small space to entertain the possibility, however unlikely, that Sarah had simply gone off and not told anyone. And you hear a lot of things coming out after that. People just throw in whatever goes through their mind, you know. Maybe she wasn't happy. And she left, and a lot of people say a lot of No, she was never, that wasn't the person. She was a happy person. She was always Mm. happy. There was nothing, um, always happy. But no matter what was said by those who didn't know her, Angela, Sonia and Con knew Sarah well and never believed that she would have left of her own volition. It's just 
wasn't her. It's not human nature. No, she, you can't, yeah, yeah. you know, like no matter what anybody said, it was like she wouldn't have just disappeared. It's not the type of person. Through the media, the McDermott's begged for Sarah's safe return. And there was something that gave them hope. Just the week before, in another high-profile kidnapping case, a victim had been returned. On Tuesday the 3rd of July, eight days before Sarah was taken, an offender that the press dubbed Mr Cruel broke into a house in Canterbury in Melbourne's east. In the middle of the night, he kidnapped 13-year-old Nicola Linus. Mr Cruel's previous victim had been released after 18 hours, so hope was held for the girl's safe return. At 1.30am on Friday the 6th of July, 50 hours after she was taken, Nicola was released at a power substation in the neighbouring suburb of Kew. So if Nicola could be returned, maybe Sarah could be returned too. The media was quick to cover Sarah's disappearance. For any family in the situations the McDermott's found themselves in, the media is a double-edged sword. Inasmuch as they are a necessary part of the process, their constant presence to people unused to it can be really daunting. You then had the reporters all descending and wanting to speak to mum and dad, and you had... TV crews rocking up. But as Alastair points out, no matter how much they were inundated, nothing took away from the fact that one day Sarah was there and then suddenly she wasn't. There was plenty going on. If anything, it, it was probably stressful. And obviously all those individual bits are going on and over the whole lot is the is the mega stress and anxiety then that's in full-blown mode about where are you, Sarah? Sarah's disappearance hit the media and the story made national headlines. Up north in Queensland, Sarah's childhood friend Noni was busy with her new baby. I was just feeding my little boy. He was just almost four months at the time. And I was just sitting in my bed feeding him and the, and the morning news came on and Sarah's photo came up on the morning news and sorry it still upsets me today and, uh, and I remember when the photo came up uh, I put my little boy down and then I just uh, like I was changing him and I just was shaking so much then not long after that, I, I, um, I got a phone call because my sister had seen him on telly as well. She rang my mum and then they rang me. So, And then um, I rang Sheila, but at the time that I rang, somebody else answered the phone down there and I talked to Sheila for a minute or two, but they were um, trying to keep the phone free, obviously, in case some other news came through. You can only imagine the horror of it friends hearing of Sarah's disappearance and trying to ring, but for the McDermott family, every ring of the phone could be news. Sarah's friend Anna 
who had left for her family trip overseas just two weeks earlier, heard the news when Family in Australia called Family Overseas where she was staying. We had a a phone call from my sister-in-law and I remember my sister saying, oh yeah, you've got a tower, it's better if you tower. And then I said, oh, what happened? And I remember my sister-in-law when she told me, I was just froze, I couldn't believe it. I remember crying without stopping because I couldn't believe that that could have happened. I couldn't sleep that night. It's just terrible. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. While the news of Sarah's disappearance filtered out into the world, police set up a command post on the corner of Bardia Avenue and Wells Road, right opposite the Cannonock Railway Station car park. Police stopped thousands of cars on Wells Road and circulated a missing persons bulletin with Sarah's photograph, description and details on it. Police organised a mannequin dressed in the same tracksuit that Sarah had been wearing on the night she disappeared. They displayed it outside their command post. While Search and Rescue and the SES searched the local area and beyond, it was the job of the detectives to figure out what had happened at the train station car park after Sarah got off the train. For Inspector Laurie Ratz, the first puzzle was the whereabouts of both Sarah and the things she had been carrying. From discussions with her parents that Clark and Randall had, she was known to have been carrying quite a, quite a bit of property. She had a big bag, she'd been playing tennis, so she had her work clothes, she had a tennis racket, as well as we assumed that she would have had a purse or some sort of handbag as well. And there was nothing in the crime scene at all, which obviously indicates that whoever's taken her has taken the time to clean up. Cleaned up everything except for the lighter found in the bushes where the blood was discovered. We were able to connect her with the lighter so we knew that she had dropped stuff or she'd at least dropped the lighter and, and someone had picked everything up, including uh, including Sarah, like a bag, a tennis racket, a handbag with keys and all of those things had taken the whole lot away, which indicates a bit of time, a bit of concentration on, you know, what to do. It's like there's a decision was made by whoever moved her or took her away uh, to pick up and make sure there was nothing else there or as what they thought that was just like a clean slate virtually that everything had gone. So that gave me a a fair bit of concern right from the beginning as well. Had Laurie Rance ever seen this kind of disappearance before? Had you ever had a case like this where no. someone had just been snatched or, or taken? Normally you would think if, well, you, you've got to try and put yourself in the mind of the offender or offenders. And if it indicates to me that there was, wasn't a great deal of panic. So, so there was enough time to work out, we better do this, we better do that, or I better do this, whether it was one or more offenders, we just don't know. So there, there was a, 
a degree of non-panic or a degree of planning or coming to grips with what's happened, okay, this is what we've got to do next, and, and some time. Detectives use evidence to figure out the methodology of the offender. So what did all this tell Laurie Rance about the offender or offenders? You would think if it was a spur-of-the-moment thing and that the offender might just leg it, that I'm, I'm out of here, I've done something really bad, I'm getting out as quick as I could, just leave the body where it is, leave all the other things that she's carrying, whether they spread all over the, the ground, no-one knows, but you would think that's quite a possibility. But for to clean up around them and take everything, and it would have been dark, well, obviously, 10.30, so it's just another thing that you consider when you're looking around and trying to work out exactly what happened. To try and reconstruct what happened on the night Sarah disappeared, the police took statements from train passengers and used the media to call for people who had seen anything on the night. As people came forward, investigators pieced together the puzzle. Slowly but surely, a picture emerged of just how busy it was at Cannonock Station that night. In order for me to understand where everyone was, I've been studying Google Maps, which has a really handy measuring tool to gauge distances. Cannonock Railway Station is unusual because it has one platform in the middle with railway tracks on either side of it. To get to the platform, pedestrians need to walk up a 55 metre ramp or take the stairs on the other side of the ramp and then turn onto the pedestrian bridge over the railway line. It's around 10 metres from the ramp on Wells Road to the parallel ramp, which takes you down to the station platform. If you don't take that ramp, but keep going, the pedestrian overpass continues on, over the railway tracks, then over the Frankston Freeway, and comes out onto Quinn Street, a distance of 120 metres across. The distances will become important when we examine what people heard and from what distance away. It turned out a lot of people were at or near the Cannonock Railway Station that night. Reading all the statements is like piecing together a big jigsaw puzzle. Given the length of time since they were witnesses, I am going to use their first names only. I've also had voice actors read from their statements. Just before 10pm on Wednesday the 11th of July, 12-year-old Nancy and her dad John walked up to the Cannonock Railway Station with their dogs, one a German Shepherd and the other a little terrier. They were to meet Nancy's mum, whose car had broken down the day before, That afternoon, she had caught the bus to work in Frankston for her waitressing shift. There were no buses when she finished work, so she planned to walk home. John and Nancy planned to meet her halfway at the Cannonock Railway Station. Nancy and her dad approached from Clower Street, which rose up over the freeway and the train line, just like the pedestrian bridge further down. Once over the tracks, Clower Street became Wells Road, the road the Cannonock Station was on. Nancy and John walked past the Dark Station car park and stopped 200 metres further up, next to the pedestrian lights opposite the station itself. 
Nancy sat down on the wooden edging outside the car yard facing the station. From that vantage point, she could see a man on the station platform wearing a red jumper. He had a suitcase with him. Nancy watched another man in blue overalls ride a pushbike down Wells Road, coming toward the station from the direction of Frankston. She watched as he rode his bike up the Wells Road ramp, then he turned right onto the overpass to ride to where the ramp went down to the station platform. He stopped at the top and it looked to Nancy like he was waiting for a train to come. And then a train did come, the one Sarah McDermott was on, pulled into the station. Nancy saw three women come down from the direction of the Cannonock Primary School, two streets up, and cross over to where she and her dad were waiting. The women made a phone call at a public phone, then minutes later, a yellow van pulled up and they all got in. These women would later come forward and tell police that they'd been out for a night at bingo at the state school. Neither John nor Nancy saw Sarah. Not surprising because from where they were, the huge concrete ramp blocked their vision. Detective Cole Clark remembers the family. They were a family, a father and a 12-year-old daughter, I think at the time, that were walking a German shepherd dog and another dog to meet the wife who was um, walking up to the Kendall Railway Station at that time. The 12-year-old, she gave a very good version of people that were at the railway station at the time. They saw the train come in, they saw people get off, and they saw some females go and make a telephone call at a phone box. I think they were the bingo ladies. Yeah, that's where they'd been off. And, and you find all these people uh, to speak to them and, and identify who was who. That was uh, that did get off at the railway station at the time, but the 12-year-old girl, she was really good. They then walk off and towards going up over the Cannonook Bridge that goes over the overpass there and walking the dog, and they see a man coming in the opposite direction with his head down, and he appeared to be very upset and worried. They'd met up with the wife at that stage, and they were walking home. We never found that that bloke. No one come forward to say that that was them. Here's what Nancy later told police. Just after these ladies drove off, I heard some noises from on top of the railway pedestrian bridge. I looked up and saw about five males on the bridge. They looked drunk to me because they were walking funny. They were walking towards the steps down to the car park. I lost sight of them because of the trees in the way. Only a couple of minutes after I saw these males, I heard what I thought was a female voice screaming loudly immediately followed by more than one male voices. These males were screaming out loudly also. They weren't saying anything, but just screams. These male and female screams came from the car park end of the railway station. I thought that the screams came from the middle of the car park. There was only one scream from a female. As I heard this, so did the dogs, because they started barking out, and the one that I had held of started pulling towards the car parkway. I could not see who these persons were that were screaming. This screaming took place about three to five minutes after the Frankston-bound train pulled out of the station. Like Nancy, her dad John saw the man on the bike ride to the top of the pedestrian bridge and wait there. 
He also saw the man with the red jumper on the train platform. He heard the men's raised voices. He heard the screaming right about the time the bingo ladies crossed the road. The implication was that if he and his daughter heard it, the bingo ladies might have heard it too. Here's what John told the police. Three or four minutes after the train left for Frankston, I heard shouting. I heard more than one male voice and one female voice. I couldn't hear what the voices were saying. It was more like they were yelling out loud noises, but not happy noises. I heard the female voice between the two male voices. The female was screaming. I think she screamed two times, and then I heard the two male voices again. The yelling and screaming only lasted for about two minutes altogether. I thought it must have been naughty kids playing at the car park at the station. It sounded as if they were near the end of the car park towards Melbourne, but not right at the end. I couldn't see them from where I was standing. I was looking to see where the voices were coming from. The dog started barking straight away. I didn't hear anything after that. I saw the man with the bike had disappeared. I saw that the man on the platform with the red jumper was still there, but was on the other side of the platform. Around the time I heard the noises, I saw three ladies standing at a telephone box across the road from the station. They'd walked past Nancy and me a few minutes before. I don't know whether or not they got off the train. It's worth noting that near the end of the car park would have been around 185 metres from where John and Nancy were standing. About 10 minutes after Nancy heard the screams, her mum arrived. The family set off up Wells Road, past the station car park on their right, and headed toward the bridge that would take them over to Clower Street. Nancy said in her statement, I saw a man walking towards us along the same footpath. I saw that he was walking very fast and he looked to be very worried. His facial expressions made him look very worried along with him walking very fast. He looked as though he was deliberately trying to keep his head down. I saw Dad pull the dog over and he walked past Dad and then Mum, who was carrying the other dog. I got a very good look at the man's face as he came towards me and went past. There was a light shining in the area that lit us up. He then passed me and kept walking along the footpath towards Frankston. I remember turning around and looking at him walking away. John was wrangling the German Shepherd when the man approached the family. As they walked toward the bridge past the station car park, he too saw the man approach. But since he was busy trying to control the dog, he didn't get a good look at the man. He did estimate the time as being about 10 minutes after the screams, around 10.35. When Nancy's mum was interviewed by police, here's what she said. I was talking to Nancy. I suddenly looked up and saw a man coming towards me. He was near me and he kept coming towards me, so I stepped to my right onto the roadway. The man walked past me and kept going. He had a worried look on his face and he was looking down all the time. He didn't look at me. I looked at his face as he was coming towards me. He was walking at about normal pace for somebody going down a hill. We kept on walking until we got home. We did not see anybody else along the way. 
I remember that this man was wearing blue jeans that looked like old jeans. He was wearing a waterproof jacket that was blue in colour, similar to his jeans. I haven't seen this man before. Nancy and her mother later worked with police on an identikit of the man who looked worried. We asked Victoria Police if we could share the identikit on our website for this podcast. They said no. Despite extensive searching through the state and local libraries, Sandra, a researcher who was helping me, could find no evidence the identikit was published at the time. I interviewed well-known retired homicide squad detective Charlie Bazina and asked him why the identikit wouldn't have been published. Charlie worked Sarah's case from the beginning. It's a matter of you sitting with what information you've got because you've got to balance that up because do, do we want to alert the potential offender slash suspect to say, geez, they're onto me, and that person might then get rid of the clothing that, that he had and start destroying evidence. And that becomes operational decisions you do as an investigator to say, well, you know what, on one hand, we've got the eyes and ears of the community, do we release that? But on the other hand, no doubt, often we, we, we anticipate that the offender suspects would be looking at the media to learn, well, what have they got? What have the police got? And then if they don't get that, so oh, well, I'm pretty safe, gives them that confidence. So it becomes a balancing act. What do we tell them, the public at large? That's not going to harm our case. However, we want to catch this person or eliminate this person because people are quite innocently in areas at the time and say, well, you know, and people might think they hear it and say, oh, well, the police got a suspect already, but we just need to account for a person Be oh, look, yeah, that was me. I was walking past there. And Charlie said something I hadn't thought of. People come forward after they know something bad has happened. In this case, Sarah being taken. They remember what they've seen, but in hindsight, they look at it through the lens of knowing. Maybe interpretations are tainted by that knowledge. And the fact that someone interprets, oh, you look nervous, you look that, but that's just interpretation. They think of something sinister because something sinister has happened. Or what's your interpretation of nervous? You start cross-examining your witness to say, well, why do you say he was nervous? What was he doing to give that impression? to get some clarity and then to say, well, oh, well, I suppose you're right. Look, he was pacing up and down. Could he have been waiting for somebody? And then all we ask for, we make an plea, can this person who fits the description come forward so we can eliminate him from our inquiries? Is it just an innocent bystander or is it a potential co-offender? So it, it's a really operational decision you've got to make of saying, well, what do we release? Another reason that the identikit might not have been published was that by the time it was made, a young woman had entered the scene and the investigative focus was on her. Maybe the police thought it counterproductive to publish a picture of a man when they were focusing on a woman. The three bingo ladies came forward. According to their statements, They saw the man pacing on the platform that Nancy and her dad had seen, but they didn't report hearing any screams or yelling. They remembered Nancy and her dad and their dogs. The man in the van who picked them up was the husband of one of the women he'd offered to collect them after bingo. 
The police would never identify the man on the bike or the man in the red jumper on the platform. And they never identified the man with the worried look on his face who walked past Nancy and her parents as they went past the station car park. As information flooded in, Detective Cole Clark and the team of investigators scrambled to follow up each lead. There was information coming in on a daily basis that had to be followed through. Every time you get a bit of information, someone telling you something, it's put out on paper in an information report at the times we did those, and that was followed up to the nth degree, so there was nothing no outstanding information that hadn't been done. As well as talking to anyone near the station at the time Sarah vanished, detectives also interviewed people who were on the same train as Sarah, especially the ones who got off at Cannonook at the same time she did. The police asked Sarah's co-workers, Gavin and Diane, to participate in a reenactment exactly a week after Sarah disappeared. To try and jog people's memories, they would catch the same train home with a policewoman playing the part of Sarah. She was dressed in the same clothes Sarah was wearing on the night. Gavin wasn't keen to step into the spotlight. TV cameras and interviews and film crews were not part of his world. But by then, he'd met Sarah's parents, Peter and Sheila, and for them, he stepped outside of his comfort zone. Gavin describes what it is like for normal people to get caught up in something like this. When they asked us to do the recreation of the train trip, the reenactment, I sort of said, oh, no, you know, this is to the police media lady. And she's gone, oh, Sheila and Peter are, are really keen. And I thought, oh, yeah, God, you got to. All they were asking us to do was to do the train trip again and that there would be a dummy set up at Cannonook in Sarah's clothes and and then the news were going to be there and they just, uh, could we talk to them for a while? And I'm going, oh, no, not really, you know. And then again they said, oh, well, you know, this is really important in terms of keeping it in the forefront and again mentioned the parents and putting yourself in their position and wouldn't you want to do everything to help? And I'm not saying in any way that was leveraged like that. It's just, you know, that's obviously the way they coaxed me into doing it. And then um, I said, yeah, all right, but to to the media lady, but just say to them, uh, to the news crews, no one is to ask me, if you were able to speak to the person who did this, what would you want to say to them? Because I wouldn't want to say anything to them. (laughs) It's not, I hate that in these news stories. I've seen it so many times over the years and I'm saying, oh, don't ask that question. And obviously it's a deliberate question that the police always have at the forefront for for whatever reasons, you know, psychological profiling or whatever, that must be meant to attract something from the guilty party or the criminal, I would have thought. But in the end, we did and we got off and the camera crew's there and I think it was the first thing that he asked me. Sarah was last seen wearing a white-coloured tennis jacket with multicoloured stripes on the left-hand side of the jacket with the word ultimate written on it. She had a white t-shirt underneath. Sarah had been wearing jade-coloured tracksuit pants, white tennis socks and white tennis shoes with pink laces. At the time she was carrying a blue backpack with 
red piping and red handles, a black handbag, which her friend Diane remembered seeing on the train, and a black tennis racket with pink tape around the handle. Sarah's mum, Sheila, said Sarah sometimes put the handbag inside the backpack. Right from the start, people who caught the train with Sarah or saw her getting off the train at Cannonook began coming forward. The intense media interest helped. Police pieced together who saw what. With each new witness, the police had to take a statement and then seek corroboration for whatever was said in the statement. It was a painstaking and lengthy process, but soon a picture emerged. Again, I will identify witnesses by their first names and have others read their statements. On the night Sarah vanished, a teenager called Julie caught the train to Frankston. At Cannonook Station, she noticed a girl in a white top and green tracksuit pants get off the train. Julie remembered her because of the bright tracksuit and Sarah looked similar to a girl she knew. Annabelle was in the same carriage as Sarah, Gavin and Diane. She noticed that Gavin and Diane got off a couple of stations before Sarah. Annabelle told police. At Cannonook, I saw the lady with the tennis racket get off. I think possibly another man got out of the carriage from the same door. I cannot think what it looked like. I remember that the lady with the tennis racket had blonde hair and I remember she was called Sarah when her friend said goodbye to her when they got off the train. A man called Stephen noticed Sarah in the train carriage with her friends. He saw them getting off at Bond Beach and then Sarah at Cannonook. He couldn't say for sure if anyone else got off at Cannonook, but he thought maybe there were others. 15-year-old Chad was on the train that night and got off at Cannonook. On the station platform ramp, Chad noticed a woman with blonde hair wearing a white-coloured jacket and carrying a tennis racket and sports bag. She was about five metres ahead of him. A man carrying a plastic bag, who'd been in the same carriage as Chad, ran up the ramp and passed the girl with the tennis racket. At the top of the ramp, the man turned right and kept going over the overpass across the freeway to the other side. Chad saw the girl with the tennis racket turn to the left, which would take her toward Wells Road and the car park. Chad noticed another woman in her mid-twenties with dark hair and a long overcoat. She went the same way Sarah did, turning left toward the car park. 23-year-old Robin was in the same carriage as Sarah. Like everyone else who noticed her, she stood out to him because of her tennis racket. He noticed her blue backpack too. There were quite a few people on the train. Their numbers thinned as they got closer to Frankston, the end of the line. Robin noticed a man on the train who sat in the rear corner. He had what looked like a bottle of alcohol in a brown paper bag. Robin got off the train at Cannonook. He would later tell police. The guy with the drink got off with me and walked out the same door and he started walking toward the gate in front of me. The girl got off out of the middle door and was about opposite the gate and I noticed another man at the bottom of the ramp outside the platform gate. After I got off the train, the man with the bottle was in front and headed up the ramp. 
The girl was walking beside me as we were heading up the ramp. The second guy went to walk up and then stopped and was behind us. We all kept walking up the ramp until we reached the T-intersection at the top. The guy with the bottle turned left and headed towards Wells Road and I went to the right and stopped and the girl went to the left and also went towards Wells Road. When I stopped, I turned around to pull my jumper on from out of my bag and turned around to see if anyone was there behind me. I saw that the man with the bottle was going down the stairs and the other guy I noticed was walking down the ramp towards Frankston and the girl started from what I gather to go down the stairs. The guy with the bottle was about two or three metres in front of her. At that stage, I had already put my jumper on. I then picked up my bag and ran across the bridge because I'm scared of heights and I proceeded to go home. Like others that night, Robin noticed the man in overalls with a push bike, waiting at the top of the bridge above the station. When Robin was halfway up the ramp, the man rode off to the right, heading over to the other side of the freeway. The final witness from the train was a woman called Maria. She had noticed Sarah on the train. I recall seeing a girl on this carriage in her early 20s, wearing trendy sports gear, but I can't remember what colour. She had curly, fair-coloured hair with a bag, which was dark-coloured with a wide strap. The bag appeared to be full as it was compact. Maria was the last to get off the train at Cannanook that night. Getting off the train, she noticed the girl who matched Sarah's description, one elderly man with a long coat, and two young men. Maria described how she remembered the people exiting the train, then walking from the station platform, then up the ramp. She said she saw the girl who matched Sarah's description walking ahead. One of the young men followed in her wake, but it didn't look to Maria like he was following her, just walking behind her. As I reached the turnstiles, everyone was ahead of me. I was the last person through. The girl and the boy were next ahead of me. I was walking slowly because of a disability I have. And it is here that Maria's statement is so important. From her position at the top of the ramp on the overpass, not only could she see Sarah's red car, what she heard next might have been Sarah's last words. I reached the top of the ramp to where it joins the bridge and just started turning right when I heard a female voice say, give me my car keys back and stop fooling around. I could also hear other talking, but I couldn't understand what was being said. It sounded muffled. The words I heard were in a firm, but not a yelling type of voice. I couldn't see what was going on when I looked over the bridge, as it was dark and obscured by bush. I continued walking along the bridge and also continued looking towards the car park. I saw a red coloured car, a small car, which appeared in the first half of the car park. Within a few seconds of hearing the female voice, I heard a female scream. It was cut off after a very short time, for less than a second. I stopped and looked everywhere. The car park, the station 
and the railway line, but I couldn't see anyone. I stood there looking and waiting to hear something else for about three minutes. I didn't hear or see anything. I did see one car, a light-coloured, old-conditioned utility. It was travelling on Wells Road and seemed to be on the wrong side of the road when it first came into my view. It was accelerating as if it had just left the vicinity of the station. I was the only one that walked to the right over the footway towards Quinn Street. Until I couldn't see the car park any longer, I did not see the red car move. There was something about what Maria heard that disturbed her. The give me my car keys back and stop fooling around and the short scream. Here's what she would write later in her diary. When I arrived home, I made an entry in my diary, which was in addition to earlier entries for that day. Wednesday the 11th, July, 1990. That night I added, I wish girls would not scream for nothing late at night. You don't know if it's real or not. The approximate distance Maria was from the words she heard in the car park in a firm but not yelling type of voice is around 150 metres away. The recollections of the witnesses are not consistent. While 12-year-old Nancy mentioned seeing five boisterous teenagers heading down toward the car park, no one else did. Maria didn't see anyone else turning right to head over the overpass, but Robin said he did and saw a man on the bike head that way too. Robin saw the man with a bottle in the brown paper bag head toward the car park, but no one else did. Nancy and her dad heard screams for two minutes, but Maria heard a scream cut off after a second. Nancy and her dad said that their dogs barked at the screaming, but no one else mentioned hearing dogs bark. Others didn't hear screams at all. Maria saw others getting off the train, but no one mentioned seeing her. When I discussed all these witnesses with Detective Colin Clark, I joked that you needed a whiteboard to mark where everyone was and what they saw. Well, we actually did that. We had a whiteboard at the yeah. time trying to piece who was where at the time. And obviously people's memories of things are different. Yeah, they're not taking much notice getting off a train at 10 o'clock at night. They're just thinking about going home. Inspector Laurie Ratz says these statement anomalies are completely normal and expected. Talk to witnesses and, and obviously the witnesses were saying uh, not only the, about the, uh, the man that came round with the worried look and looking down, but other witnesses have said they, they'd heard yelling and screaming and a woman's voice and a man's voice. Some said that they heard two men's voices, uh, only one woman's voice. And that's one of the vagaries of people witnessing crimes, that never two people have exactly the same story. So that adds a bit of credibility to what you're trying to, to do. If, you, if eight people came along and told you exactly the same story, you'd be suspicious just of that. As well as the witnesses near the station or on the train, a lot of residents reported hearing screaming in the general vicinity between 10.30 and 11pm. 
Reading through all the statements, I've put together an overview of what was reported. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how far voices or a scream might travel at night. I think it depends on a lot of variables. To give you a context, there was a crime in a street I lived in years ago where a victim in a front yard screamed. I heard it from my house 18 metres away, but no one else in the street heard anything. So when I began measuring distances on Google Maps, I wondered if the screams so many reported hearing that night could have come from the station car park and therefore been Sarah. Or was someone else screaming that night in an incident unrelated to Sarah being taken? Think about the last time you heard anyone screaming or yelling in your street. It's usually because it's right outside your house or really close by. All of the people who reported hearing screaming that night were on the other side of the railway line, which meant that between them and the car park was a railway line and a freeway. Albert lived 195 metres from the car park on the other side of the station overpass. He and his wife heard screaming about 10.45pm, 25 minutes after Sarah's train. Here's what he told police. I went and joined my wife on the back step, and as I did, I heard a scream, which appeared to come from the direction of Cannonook Railway Station car park. It was a short scream of perhaps three to four seconds, and I would say came from a female person. The station is just over the ramp. I didn't ring the police because screams and other noises are quite common from the railway station, and you can't ring the police every time you hear a noise. Albert's wife described the screaming she heard. It was clearly audible to me. It sounded like a short scream first, and then it got louder and louder. It was not only one scream. When it got louder, it was continuous. I thought it was cats fighting initially, but I found out later about the Cannonook incident. I said to my husband to come out and listen and asked him what he thought. I said, was that cats or was it human? We decided it was probably cats, but it sent a shiver up my spine just listening to it. My husband and I, we discussed whether we'd go up to the ramp to see what it was, but we decided against it because it was too dark. There are no lights over the ramp. Cheryl lived on Clower Street, 395 metres from the station car park. Remember, Clower Street becomes Wells Road, where the station is. At 10.30pm, 10 minutes after Sarah's train, Cheryl saw a car, maybe white or yellow, screech around from Hartnett Drive into Clower Street and head over the bridge toward the Cannonock Railway Station. There were passengers in the front and back. The car was loud. Cheryl guessed a V8. A couple of minutes later, she heard a scream coming from the direction of the overpass. She went outside, wondering if the car had hit someone. Minutes later, the car came back again, screeched into Hartnett Drive and nearly collided with another car coming in the opposite direction. Mary lived on the other side of the pedestrian overpass in a house near the walkway from the station. Between 10.45 and 11, she heard a woman screaming. She told police, The screaming lasted for about three minutes. I didn't take any notice. And after the screaming stopped, I heard nothing else. 
About 15 minutes after this, I heard footsteps on the walkway, but I took no notice. Mary's house was 230 metres from the car park. Michael was visiting a friend who lived near the overpass from the station that comes out onto Quinn Street. Between 10.50 and 11.20, he too heard a woman scream as he was leaving his friend's place. He told police, There were a couple of screams close to each other, which sounded to be the same voice. I didn't think much about it at the time, and I got in my car and I drove off. Michael's friend's house was 300 metres from the car park. Beryl, who lived over on Elliott Street, 475 metres from the car park, told police, Sometime near 10.30pm, I was in the front lounge room when I heard a scream. It sounded like a hysterical, very frightened scream. I then heard a second scream that didn't sound quite as loud as the first one. It was definitely a female voice and it sounded to me as though it was a young adult. Beryl thought the screaming came from somewhere on Elliott Street where she lived, which made more sense because at a distance of almost half a kilometre, it's unlikely she could have heard anything from the car park. Reading these statements today with the wisdom of hindsight, it seems callous that no one called the police in light of these frightened hysterical screams heard over a 45-minute period. But the reality was, screams came from the railway station all the time. Detective Cole Clark had been called to the station a lot over the years. More than anyone, he knew the screamers were commonplace. Well, there could have been, because there was other people that were seen in the area walking around that could have been mucking around. I know I've been on and off that railway station at night times when we were investigating this, and you'd hear people yelling and screaming, and particularly young kids and girls, they did that. So it was hard to tell whether that screaming was exactly Sarah or at that time or whether it was someone else nearby, but you certainly can't discount it. So what did these screams mean? Sarah's train pulled into Cannanook that night at 10.20. The walk to the car park was a couple of minutes. She was attacked at her car, So who was screaming 15 or 20 minutes after that? Could it be unrelated to Sarah? Having had my own experience hearing a scream of peril 18 metres away when no other neighbours heard anything, were all these witnesses just too far away to have heard Sarah across a train line and a freeway? Maybe the screaming on the other side of the tracks had nothing to do with Sarah at all. But while no two witnesses said the same thing, a general picture emerged that Inspector Laurie Ratz found disturbing. You try to build a a bit of a mind picture as to what's going on. So it, it sounded initially like there was somebody who had either interfered with her or assaulted her or grabbed her or done something. So there's been some sort of struggle in it and some yelling and screaming and then it all went quiet. I asked Laurie whether the position Sarah was dragged to into the bushes could have concealed her from anyone walking past. I think she was concealed by darkness. 
because it was very dark from memory. I think there might have been only one light around that car park and that was further up towards the station and where the, she came down. So when she's come down the bottom of the stairs and walked towards the car park, she's virtually walked into the darkness. Coming up in the next episode of Searching for Sarah McDermott. I said, what's wrong? She said, you know that murder that was up at the Cannonook station? I was there with two other blokes and I'm worried because I don't know how staunch they are.